because of how much we value our families, uh, we take precautions to keep them safe. Uh, perhaps you lock your doors at night, or maybe you have a security system on your house, or um, when we moved into this house and got our Wi-Fi connected, the company gave us a ring camera. You, know, you have a ring camera? It's pretty fun. It sits out in the front. You can see people coming in and out. You see all kinds of funny things on ring cameras. Um, some things that we've captured, and you can share little clips with your family. We send them in our, our family chat. If someone's doing something funny at the front door, usually it's one of my sons or my dog. Every now and then, the dog will just kind of be looking at it. You can see up our nostrils. It's really fun. Um, but we do these things to try to keep ourselves safe. Now, if someone is breaking into your house and you see this happening with your ring camera, you can press the alert button and it goes, eh, 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 and like they're very afraid. <laughs> right? Like that ring camera is keeping you super safe. So we make precautions, but those precautions aren't ultimately going to get the job done. You know, when our kids ride around in the car when they're little, you put them in car seats trying to keep them safe. Or if they get on their bikes as little children, you want them to wear bike helmets. Or if you get them a skateboard, they first have it, you get them the elbow pads and the knee pads because you don't want to have $8 million worth of Band-Aids going out. So you, you do these things to take precautions. But all the precautions that you might take does not necessarily guarantee protection. Uh, we are dependent way beyond our precautions. The safety and security of our family is completely in the hands of the Lord. There's a psalm, uh, the first verse of the 127th psalm, that speaks to this a little bit, where God's Word says, "...unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain." So you can put all the precautions in place, but there's only so much you can do. But that there's no such uh, limitation with the Lord. He is fully able and capable. He's trustworthy. Our passage this morning in Romans chapter 16, as we think through it, uh, we're going to recognize the call that Paul gives us to watch out for deceivers in verses 17 and 18. He's going to tell us to walk wisely in the Gospel without wavering in verse 19. But in verse 20, Paul is going to give us the ultimate reason for our confidence, and that is that God is going to bring about a fitting conclusion. So, with that being said, I want to read verses 17 through 20 of Romans 16. You can follow along with me, please, if you have a Bible with you. God's Word says, I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ or our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's whole ministry was dedicated 
to proclaiming and preserving the proclamation of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. He dedicated his life to making sure that people could hear the good news about Jesus Christ and to ensure that the proclamation of the gospel would continue without mixture. Uh, He was willing to pour out his own soul. In in, uh, Philippians 2.17, he was willing to be poured out like a drink offering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I'm very willing to spend and to be spent for your souls. He was so adamant that he made this statement. We read uh, part of this to start the service. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9, these will be on the screens to my left and right. Uh, He says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. That is a strong word. He actually, with, with deepest solemnity, he says, I want them to be set aside and cast into the lake of fire forever if they're willing to deceive other people away from the good message that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. So those are very harsh terms, but the harshness of the term is because of the gravity of the subject. Why is it such a grave subject? People's lives hang in the balance. There is only one message of the Gospel. It's that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Jesus, in His coming into the world to save sinners, accomplished that salvation completely. And we can hear the the echo of it when we hear the words of Jesus on the cross when He said, it is finished. He accomplished the work. So Jesus came into the world to save sinners and He would not be thwarted in that. It was such an important matter to make sure that people understood the simplicity of the good news of Jesus Christ that Paul commissioned Timothy, one of his disciples, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He commissioned Timothy to wage a good warfare. Now when you hear that, it's very easy to be misunderstanding. And I think we've got to make sure we're very clear on what we're talking about as Christians warring a good warfare. See, what comes to our minds naturally is that we see someone that is an of the Gospel and we fight with them. It's very natural. Someone is doing something opposite of what we think is right and so we fight with them. But that is not, that is not the call. It's actually to fight for them. Their minds are twisted. They don't understand the goodness of of God. And you know that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Seeing that our way is, is a destructive way and turning from it. We see it in the goodness of God. And people don't see the goodness of God. And so there they are, enshrouded in darkness. They have a, an alternate pathway. This is the way. But they've been deceived. And so we're not fighting against them. We are fighting 
for their souls that they might understand that there's a good God who sent His great and perfect Son to bear the weight of their sin on His shoulders. He stood condemned in their place and offers to them eternal life. We fight for their souls, waging a good warfare. It's so important that Jude, when writing to a group of believers, says, I, I am writing to you that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered or handed down to the saints. There's no other saving message. The Gospel message that we preach is about a good God who sent His own Son to rescue people from their hopelessness, their frustrations, and their devastating sin. And here in this passage, the tone is not one of finding people and warring against them, but guarding them from that which will continue a trajectory apart from God. And instead, leading people on a trajectory where they would see the glory and goodness and provision of God and embrace Him with all that He is and everything that He offers. So let's take a look at verses 17 and 18 as we look at this and see the warning against deceivers. The warning against deceivers. Look at verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He tells them to watch out. In some versions, it's mark them. Uh, actually, you know, maybe call them out. In some versions, it's to look out. To just have your eyes open. Don't be, don't be blinded to the fact that there's going to be a, an opposition to the only saving message. If you think about that, why is there opposition to the only saving message? Well, the world would counter it because as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they'd rather hide. And the Gospel comes and shines light. Before we can ever embrace Jesus Christ, the Gospel shows us that there's something wrong with us. That's a really good starting point. There's something wrong. The Gospel comes and reveals that depth of our depravity, our sinfulness, our brokenness, our waywardness, our desire to have our own way, to be our own boss, to lead it our own way, to do whatever we think is right. So the, the world would oppose it. But there's also another entity that stands in opposition to the gospel, and that is Satan himself and his host of angelic beings that fell after him. He's, he would love nothing more than to distort the light. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the, the one that you can see, the God that 
has been has come in flesh. The one who tabernacled among us. Satan wants nothing more than to blind those eyes so that as the light of the Gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ who is the demonstration of the Father comes, he says, no. No, there's, there's, there's other things. There are other ways. So Satan tries to blind. But you know, the most devastating and most frustrating and most disturbing is not what happens outside of the church or from Satan. It's when from within the church there are deviations in the Gospel. And God's Word over and over warns us of this. And Paul warns uh, a group of elders, a group of leaders in a church. Take a look please at Acts chapter 20 for a moment. He's giving his farewell address to these Ephesian pastors. It's a group of pastors in a church on the other side of the world. He's not going to see them again. He recalls his ministry among them, how he faithfully proclaimed the Gospel to them, but he leaves them not just with encouraging words, uh, positivity. My daughter, um, Addie, stuck this little sticker on me this morning. She had it up here. I moved it on the back of my tie. It says, positive thinking. So that, that, wasn't, that wasn't Paul's only message, positive thinking. Oh, it was all good. He also gave them some very important warnings before he left. So look at verses 24 and following of Acts chapter 20. He says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Which What was his ministry? It was to testify to the Gospel of the grace of God. And now because I know that none of you... Uh, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I did my job. I came among you and I told you about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I told you that He is the substance of everything that God is calling you to have. He has provided Him for you. Believe Him. Trust Him. I've done this carefully and systematically. But now in verse 24, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He, God, obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in where? Among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after... What's the next word? Them. These men from among the elders at Ephesus, people would rise up among a group of pastors and instead of simply proclaiming the simple message that God has provided in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, they would find something novel. Something unique. And twist and distort the message not 
to raise up people to follow after Jesus Christ, the one who laid down His life and left His own blood here, spilled His own blood here for their redemption, but to raise up people after them. Like, I'm so important, I need to have my own set of followers. Let me just say, bad idea to follow this guy or any other guy. There's one Lord. There's one worthy of worship. There's one worthy of following. So long as the people behind this pulpit keep pointing you to Him, that's wonderful. If we start pointing somewhere else or to something else, it's time to say, you're done, pal. You're done. Because this is not about the guy behind the pulpit. It's about the God-man who laid down His life on a cross, was buried, and rose again. They were twisting the message. So he says in verse 31, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace which is able to build you up, etc. So there's this warning. Why is it so important? Well, verse 18 back in Romans, it'll be on the screen to my left and right. We already read it a couple of times, but on, my, on the screen to my left and right, Romans chapter... Oh, yeah, I, for, I forgot something. That's all right. You can keep moving. Apparently, it didn't need to be said. Why is it so important? Because with the twisting of the Gospel, with the twisting of the Gospel, those that have not been firmly rooted and grounded could be ripped up from their roots. Listen to what it says in verse 18. For such persons, the ones that are twisting the Scriptures, do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They want someone to follow after them. Maybe they want support, financial support. They want the, uh, the trimmings that come with celebrity Oh, if I, have a, if I have a group following after me, I'll have my entourage and they'll provide all my needs. Appetites. He says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They deceive the hearts of the, the naive is, is those that are un... It's, it's akakas. It's a great word. It's without malice. Without evil. The... Deceiving the hearts of those that aren't trying to manipulate and find their own niche. They're just, okay, tell me. They're unmixed. They're untarnished is the concept. They're not mixed with evil intention. doesn't mean they're not mixed with evil because we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they'll twist and deceive the hearts of the naive. And the pastors of churches have been specifically placed there to watch out for your souls. You know, there are lots of watchdog ministries and I, I, I get super weary of them um, because they, they find lots of little niche things to get all upset about. But what we, what we have to be on guard about is the simplicity of the Gospel. Complicating the gospel is the most devastating thing a church can involve itself in because when it's distorted, 
or shadowed or overshadowed, people start to build up all kinds of philosophies and even theologies. And those things can puff us up and give us a proud spirit. And what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, I don't want you to be beguiled like Eve was beguiled. Remember that? He says, I don't want you to move away from the simplicity that is found in Christ. Satan is a nifty, intelligent being. And he's well aware of the fact that it only takes just a little bit of twist, just a little addition or subtraction from the Gospel to remove its power. The power of God is in the Gospel, right? It's the power of God that leads to salvation for everyone who believes. But change the Gospel. Remove its exclusivity. Remove the deity of Christ. Add in, you have to be baptized. Add in, you have to take communion. Add in, this or that. And you take the Gospel that is simply about what Christ has already accomplished, you add something to it, and what you've done is you've distorted it. And it's very... uh, It's chilling because people's lives are on the line. So he says you deceive the hearts. They deceive the hearts of the naive. So we try in every facet of ministry to help people to be rooted and grounded in Christ, in the simplicity of Christ, that He he is everything you need. He's provided everything you need. He's finished the work. You don't need to add to His work. Trust Him. Believe Him. Come to Him. He's safe. And in coming to Him, to that safety, it's not temporary safety. It's not safety like you lock the door, now the thieves are out. It's eternal safety. And no one can take your soul. It's an amazing thing. So there's this warning. As part of the warning, he tells the people of Rome, the church of Rome, to avoid those that would twist and distort. And it's interesting, Paul pulls no punches in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he names names. He names names. He says, this guy is is distorting the truth. And this guy is distorting the truth. And the Apostle John in 3 John verse 9 does the same thing. He calls out Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence. He wants wants to, to lead people after himself. And he doesn't receive the truth from us. They they have no problem naming names. So there's this warning because of the gravity of the subject. So not only are we encouraged to watch out for those who deceive, but we're also then encouraged to continue in wisdom. See, he doesn't change subjects. Head back to chapter 16 of Romans. He doesn't change subjects when he goes from verses 17 and 18 to verse 19. It's the same subject. If you don't pay attention to the continuity here, you get a different message from verse 19 than it's actually calling for. He's telling us to to watch out for those that would deceive and distort the Gospel, that create divisions and create obstacles to the the Gospel because when that happens, people are deceived away from the Gospel. And now he says, I want to tell you something about where you are and the importance of continuance. So we're going to talk about wisdom for continuance from verse 19. Look what it says. 
For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Their obedience was the embrace of the Gospel. That was a source of their joy. Their lives had been impacted and changed forever because of what God had done for them in the Gospel. In light of their adherence to the Gospel, their embracing of the Gospel, and the the impact it had on their lives, he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So what is the good he's speaking about and what might the evil be? Well, I would propose to you that the good he's talking about is what God provides. What, God, what is good is what God provides rather than some deviation to something that can never satisfy. And a question I have for you, and I think it's, it's worth our while to think about it, is where do we find this wisdom that purports or conveys what is good? Where do we find this wisdom? I think we know, right? That's why every week we're here, we're looking at what does the Word say? What does the Word say? Well, we find it in the Scriptures. So you're in Romans 16. Just go to the next chapter to your right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll see a little bit about this same discussion to a different group of people. He's talking about wisdom that comes from God. In 1 Corinthians 1, look at verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He goes on there in verse 21, For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Also, there's this preaching, this, this heralding of a message that reveals or unveils the wisdom of God. Further down in the text, look at verse 27. It says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. So he's, you see what he is there? He's our wisdom. He's our sanctification. He's our righteousness. He's our everything. And he goes on in verse 31, so as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the challenge that we face is we often overcomplicate things. We want to find something to do in order to feel good about our contribution to God's work. But here, back in Romans 16, Paul is telling us to be innocent concerning evil. So the evil here is correlated to that twisting of the Gospel in verses 17 and 18. 
And then it's attributed in verse 20 to Satan, satanic work. The good, on the other hand, is guarding the gospel, embracing the gospel, staying with the gospel. So we're talking about wisdom in continuance in the gospel. This simple message that we rehearse and rehearse in text after text after text of Scripture. So often, we want to add something to it. And Paul warns against it again and again. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2 in verses 16 through 18 where he warns against adding to the gospel. He says something earlier in the text as well, but we're going to pick it up in verse 16 of Colossians 2 where he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Listen to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. That means denial of our flesh. Let no one disqualify you in asceticism or worship of angels going on about visions. And he goes on to talk about not touching this, not tasting this, not doing this. All about these things that we add. It's, it's natural for us to say, oh, how can I contribute? What's my part? Ooh, ooh, Lord, won't you look well upon me if I do this? He concludes chapter 2 of Colossians by saying this, verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they don't help. Our confidence can never be in our self-made pathways. God tells us again and again and again what He has provided for those that come to Him. What does He offer? Everything. Everything. As a sinner, I come with my sin and He offers forgiveness. As one in distress, He offers hope. As one with anxiety, He offers peace. As one with anger, He offers His love and His patience, and His kindness. What do you have to bring to the table? A lot. You have a lot to bring to the table. Unfortunately, it's not good stuff. But for all the sin that you bring to the table, God is able to meet that sin with forgiveness and an abundance of supply or grace. He meets our trouble with His kindness. It's amazing. He does it again and again. The Scriptures are constantly affirming this. So, all right. So he tells us in verses 17 and 18, watch out, there's deception there. In verse 19, continue in the simplicity of the Gospel. Don't look for some other way to satisfy yourself. You'll never find satisfaction here. You'll never find satisfaction out there. You won't even find satisfaction in here. You'll only find satisfaction in Him. Which is why when you come here, we want to point to Him. Continuing in that wisdom, that's the concept in verse 19. But you do this. Okay, you watch out and you avoid them and you continue in this wisdom and that still does not guarantee everything going well. Which is why verse 20 is so important to our conversation. We're going to finish with verse 20. Now head over to Romans 16. Look there again. Now we want to consider 
the confidence, confidence in the outcome. If it's about my watching, maybe I might miss something. If it's about my continuance, I might grow weary while doing good. But God doesn't leave it to my feeble, possible failures. Look at what He says in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God will do this. So we only have a few minutes left together, but I want you to ponder something in these last couple of moments. Do peace and crush seem to fit together? The God of peace and crushing. Do those two things seem to fit together? I think at first glance, if we're honest, say there's a discontinuity here. Crushing by a God of peace. But then you understand a little bit in the background. Because this is a, an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. After Satan deceived Adam and Eve to sin. And they catered to their flesh. God had provided all the trees of the garden to satisfy Adam and Eve. And for them to enjoy. One of which was the tree of life. They had all of this before them. God had told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes along and says, yeah, I know that God offers you this and that and the other thing. At first he actually said, oh, did God tell you you can't eat of any of these? That was his first little deception. The second one, oh, oh, you, you can eat of all those. Yeah, they're fine. But what you really want is to be able to do whatever you want. What you really want is to be your own boss. What you really want is for no one to tell you what to do anymore. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. You can decide for yourself. And ever since that day, you can see it. The handiwork of Satan causing you and me to want to choose to be our own autonomous being rather than seeing a good God who provides for us everything we need. I'm going to say, yeah, no, I don't like that pathway. I like mine. It's going on day after day. And the devastation that takes place in our lives, in people's lives, when they choose to be their own boss rather than having a good God be their Lord, you see the evidence of it in a world in constant distress. So why is it that a God of peace would crush Satan? Because Satan is devastating people's lives and sin and self-will devastates our lives and God offers us so, so much more. There's a day coming that Jesus Christ is going to rescue His creation. This creation right now, the Bible tells us, groans. And you know what? We, even believers, we groan. Because we experience ourselves every day. And it's not a lot of fun. It's not a lot of fun to unveil some of the, the sinful, frustrating sameness 
that we bring to the table. It's frustrating. So we're waiting. We're waiting for that day when God removes it all. He's not just going to remove us from the penalty of sin. He's removing us from the power of sin. He's going to remove us from the presence of sin and it will be glory and joy. As you read Revelation 21, we don't have time to turn there right now. As as you read Revelation 21, you see the the handiwork of what this looks like when, when Jesus finally finishes the job. He's already accomplished effectively the the defeat of Satan. He's already declared himself the victor. He's already actually reigned over him. He's far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that's named. Okay, That's already happened. But when it comes in its fullness, the Bible portrays this in Revelation 21 about God making a new heaven and a new earth. The old has passed away. He makes all these things new. He wipes away all tears from our eyes, all sorrow, all pain, all frustration, all our sin gone. He makes all things new. And he says that the dwelling place of God is with man. We will be His people and He will be our God. Visibly, fully, forever, without interruption. This is what's going on here in this text. We look around the world, we see injustice. We see unrest and dissatisfaction. But God offers us much more than this. We find in Him everlasting peace, eternal joy in a completely different form of justice. You know what's so unique about God's justice? He has taken all of my sin And He's taken it from me and placed it on the record of His perfect, righteous Son who willingly took it. He became sin for me. And He took the perfect, righteous record of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He places it on my account. This is God's unique, utter, different form of justice in that the just died for the unjust that He might bring us to God. This is what we find when we come to Him. And what we find there is glory and joy. I ask you as we close here, have you come to know Jesus Christ? Have you come to find safety and security in Him? You've got all these things. I'm going to make sure that my life is all lined up. You can do all the precautions you want. But you don't have the ultimate control. In Him, you can find a true and lasting refuge. Have you come to know the safety and security He offers? Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot that we've been thinking through. I pray, Father, that You would help us. Help us to realize that our confidence is not in our watching, our avoiding, or our continuance, but on Your absolute certain determination to do your will and to fulfill your promises but i pray that you would help us as we have that confidence in you that we would watch that we would watch out for deception and that we would continue in the simple wisdom of the gospel that would impact our lives that we would offer that gospel to a world that needs so desperately to see what you offer we pray that we would see people coming to know jesus 
and the life that he offers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.